Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Branch Online Sermons. I recently read a book about a World War II deception operation launched by the British against the Nazis. The aim of the operation was to convince the Germans that the Allies were going to attack Greece and Sardinia so that the Germans would leave the real target, Sicily, undefended or lightly defended. The uh, operation involved a dead body dressed in a British army uniform, dropped off the coast of Spain by a submarine uh, so that it would wash up on the beach. And in the pockets of the clothes the body was wearing were fake secret documents alluding to the fake invasion. Now, in order to create the deception, the body had to be given a whole fake identity and the real cause of death had to be hidden. Along with the fake secret documents were fake letters to a fake girlfriend, a fake backstory about money problems and fake cinema tickets to fit in with the fake love letters. The British went to an awful lot of trouble to make sure that the Germans couldn't spot the fake. And in the end, it actually worked. The Germans were deceived and they left Sicily lightly defended for the Allied attack. Well, just like the, the Germans were deceived by the fake intelligence, this passage that we're looking at today says that it's possible to be deceived by being a fake Christian. This passage that we're looking at is one of the most chilling passages, I think, in the whole Bible. It's one of the most chilling because it talks about something that's impossible. It's impossible, it says, for those who've been enlightened, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Impossible is a big word, but it's a word that we need to feel every bit of. This is a serious warning from God and it's a warning that we need to hear. Whether we need to hear that for ourselves or whether we need to hear it for somebody that we know so that we can warn them. This passage warns us about people who claim to know God, who say all the right things, but who aren't really Christians. They're only almost Christians or fake Christians. And instead of heading for an eternity with God, they're heading for an eternity under the wrath of God. The passage that we're looking at today is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 12. And if you hadn't, haven't read that yet, then please take the opportunity to pause the video and read that now. Well, the passage that we're looking at today begins with a different kind of hard word. It says in chapter 5, 11, we have much to say about this but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. The this the writer is talking about is what he's just been explaining about the high priesthood of Jesus and how Jesus helps us in our need, especially when we're facing temptation. The writer wants to talk more about how the work of Jesus can help them to live the Christian life, but he's worried that he can't do that because they don't even understand the basics. They should understand more, but they don't. 
They're like people who've never grown up. They're perpetual children. They should be eating proper adult food, but instead he still has to put it in the blender to turn it into mush so that they can understand. What is it in particular that they don't understand? Well, look at verse 13. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The truth he wants them to understand is the teaching about righteousness, or as he puts it in the next verse, being able to distinguish good from evil. We know from the beginning of chapter 6 that these people know lots of the core doctrines, the core teachings of Christianity. Repentance, cleansing, laying on of hands, resurrection, eternal judgment. But they didn't understand the basics of putting their faith into practice by distinguishing good from evil and pursuing good while leaving evil behind. In other words, the maturity he wants to see in them is their growing in Christ-likeness and holiness. You see, it's possible to know great truths and the core doctrines of Christianity, but to be utterly immature. Because maturity is not simply about knowledge, but about knowledge that leads to growing obedience. Because of that, it's worth examining yourself to see whether or not there's any evidence of growing obedience. Are you growing in the Christian life? Or are you in the same place that you have been for the last 2, 10, 20, 30, 40 or 50 years? Are you growing? Are you growing in being able to distinguish between good and evil? Are you growing in being able to say... That is not what God desires, and then turning away from that. Are you growing in being able to say, that is what God desires, therefore I'll do that? One of the great joys in my life is being able to meet with young men and to read the Bible, reflect, and pray. And it's always exciting when we read the Bible together and I see one of them grasp a new idea or understand something new about God. But if that's all I ever see, I would be bitterly disappointed. What really excites me and what really gives me great joy is when they say or they share how much the truth of God has changed them. They, they might say something like, Carl, I've never realized how sinful I am and how much I need the grace of God. And it's the same in preaching a sermon. It's always wonderfully flattering when someone says something like, oh, that was a great sermon today. But what really matters is when someone says, Carl, that passage today made me understand for the first time how much God delights in honesty and hates dishonesty. Would you pray with me for that? And it should be the same whenever any of us open the Bible for ourselves. We don't simply want a new piece of information as though we're studying for an exam on the knowledge of God. We want to know so that we can put evil away and live for God and enjoy God. Well, it would be helpful to reflect for yourself on when the last time was that you grew either by putting something sinful off 
or by putting something good on. If you examine your life and you see that you're growing in discerning uh, good from evil, if you uh, look at your life and you see that you're not just growing in discernment, but actually doing good and putting off evil, then that's a great encouragement. It's a great encouragement that by God's power, you are growing to be more like Jesus. But if you examine your life and you don't see any growing maturity, then that's really important to recognize. That's important to recognize, uh, not so that you can try and deny it or try and pretend that it's not really the way things are. Uh, it's not important to recognize so that you can fall into despair and think that you're eternally lost. Rather, the solution or the, the, the importance, the reason that it's important to recognize is is so that you can do something about it. So you can apply the gospel to your situation. The solution is to see that and to make use of the good news of God in Christ Jesus, to confess your lack of maturity to God and to ask him to forgive you in Jesus and enable you through the Spirit to grow in living for him. So first the writer challenges us to think about where we are and to press on to maturity in discerning good from evil. That brings us to verses 4 to 6, which, as I said before, are some of the most difficult verses in the Bible. Verse 4 begins, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. First of all, notice how incredible the blessings from God are that these people have experienced. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Whoever these people are, they've experienced extraordinary blessings from God. But that only makes what comes next even more terrifying. These very same people who have tasted such wonderful gifts from God are unable to repent and are re-crucifying Jesus and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now the question is, what exactly is impossible? And what does it mean to be crucifying Jesus all over again? Maybe the most common interpretation of those verses is that they are referring to someone who has known the gospel, but who then deliberately turns their back on the gospel and abandons Christianity. But it's quite unlikely that's correct. Certainly the Bible warns us against abandoning the gospel, uh, and in some ways this passage covers that idea as well. But actually the warning here is far more worrying to understand, it first helps to recognize what the problem is that the writer of Hebrews is addressing throughout the whole book. Often the problem that the writer of Hebrews is understood to be addressing is that he was writing to people who were tempted to turn back from Jesus and go back to Judaism. The reason that people think that is because he writes so much about the priesthood and the sacrificial system. 
The problem with that idea is that the writer never actually says, be careful that you don't abandon Jesus and go back to the sacrificial system. He sort of mentions something like that in the last chapter amidst a whole lot of other general commands. But the commands in that chapter could hardly be said to summarize the message of the book. The other problem with that traditional understanding of what Hebrews is addressing is that it completely ignores what the writer actually says. Throughout Hebrews, there are five warning passages. And when you look at the other four warning passages, the issue that they're addressing is not turning away from Jesus and back to Judaism. Rather, the issue that they're addressing is the historic problem of the people of Israel who said, we trust God, but then who went on living their own way. So chapter two warns, uh, chapter two warns about drifting away and disobeying the message of Jesus. Uh, chapter three warns about the Israelites testing and trying God in the wilderness and warns us not to be the same. Chapter 10 warns about going on sinning after hearing the gospel. Chapter 12 warns about a root of bitterness, which is not a warning about bitterness itself. It's a reference back to Deuteronomy 29, which says, Beware, lest there be among you a root of uh, poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Deuteronomy 29 captures the problem of the Old Testament and the problem that Hebrews addresses. People who hear the good news of God's forgiveness and who think to themselves, I'll be okay even if I do my own thing. And that same warning is found here in chapter 6. The writer talks about falling away. Now, when we hear the words falling away, we typically think of someone abandoning Christianity. But that's not what that word really means. The same word occurs numerous times in the Greek version of the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. And every time that word occurs there, it refers to the disobedience of Israel in continuing to hang on to God, but at the same time living life their own way. In other words, what this chapter is warning about is people is not people who abandon Christianity and become atheists. Uh, those people sure will be uh, find themselves outside the grace of God as well. But what this chapter is warning about is people who are part of the church, who claim to be Christians, but who live their own way and functionally ignore God. Look at the parable in 6 verse 7. For land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. The writer is talking about land that keeps receiving blessings from God, but doesn't bear any fruit. Instead, it only bears thorns and thistles. The writer is referring to people who know the gospel, who have experienced something of the blessings of being in and around what God is doing in his church through the Holy Spirit, but who rather than genuinely submitting to Jesus, they persist in going their own way and think that they'll still be safe. The writer says those people are crucifying Jesus all over again. That is, 
by deliberately giving themselves over to sin and again, again and again, they're trampling on Jesus and what he died for. Jesus died to rescue us from sin. He didn't die so that we can just keep on sinning and have a get out of jail free card. He died to rescue us from sin. The issue then is not that it's impossible to repent because that would be re-crucifying Jesus, as most Bible translations imply. Rather, the issue is that it's impossible to repent while they are re-crucifying Jesus. In other words, you can't repent while you keep giving yourself over to sin. That isn't repentance. You can't trade on God's grace. You can't keep saying, I'll be safe, though I go about living in the stubbornness of my own heart. You can't, for instance, keep sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend and expect that God will just keep forgiving you. You can't keep willfully uh, drinking too much, getting drunk and expecting that God will forgive you. You can't keep indulging in bitterness and anger and resentment and unforgiveness and expect that God will forgive you. You can't live however you want and just expect that at the end of the day, God will forgive you because that's his job. Because when you live like that, you're re-crucifying Jesus and submitting him to public disgrace. You're walking all over the top of Jesus and the very purpose for which he died, which was to rescue you from sin. Now, this passage is not talking about where those sins are followed by genuine repentance and a genuine desire to stop. It's not talking about where, having fallen into sin again, you confess that to God and seek his forgiveness, and you seek help from fellow Christians to pray for you and with you and to help you to leave those sins behind. This passage isn't talking about sin followed by genuine repentance. This passage is talking about when you deliberately and willfully keep giving yourself to sin, where you say, it's okay for me to do that because I know in advance that Jesus will forgive me. I know I'll be safe. You might be able to point to great spiritual experiences like tasting the goodness of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But if your life is characterized by living your own way, living in the stubbornness of your own heart, then you're not a Christian. But again, if you're not a Christian, then the answer is not to ignore that and try to pretend to yourself that you are. And the answer is not to despair. Rather, the answer is the same as always. The answer is the gospel. The answer is to confess your willful and deliberate sin to God and to trust in the full and free forgiveness of God in Jesus and to seek from God his strength and his power to let go of sin and live for him. The purpose of this warning is not that we might be lost, but that we might truly repent and be saved. So the writer challenges us to think about where we are and to press on to maturity in discerning good from evil. Then he warns us that we can't repent while we're holding on to sin. That's a nonsense. It puts us under the curse of God. But despite those dire warnings, the writer says he's confident of better things for his readers. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him 
as you have helped his people and continue to help them. The writer of Hebrews is worried. He's warning these people. But despite his worry and concern, he's also confident because he says there's fruit in their lives that he can see. He can see their work and their love for God. He can see their help for God's people, both in the past and in the present. Nevertheless, he says to them to continue in that, to continue to show diligence to the end. Look at verse 11. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. He doesn't want them to be lazy, but to persevere diligently so they gain God's promised inheritance. He wants them, he says, to pursue full assurance. The NIV says they should pursue the realisation of what they hope for, but the idea is more that they would pursue the rock-solid confidence in God's promises and in their own participation in those promises. Assurance of faith, as it's often called, is an important part of the Christian life, and it's one that isn't automatic. It requires diligence. You see, one of the problems with spiritual immaturity is that it can be almost impossible to distinguish it from unbelief. It's hard to tell the difference between a fake Christian and an immature Christian, because the immature Christian has so little fruit. Now, I'm not a particularly good gardener, and so a few of the plants in my garden seem to be constantly teetering on the edge of death. And I spend a fair bit of my time trying to work out whether they're really dead or they just look dead. I have plants whose leaves are going brown, plants that seem to be withering, and I give up on them only to see them spring back to life. And I have other plants that sometimes look as though they're still alive, only to discover that a few months later they were really on their way out. But then I also have other plants that even I'm not stupid enough to think that they're dead. Even I'm a good enough gardener to recognise that if a plant is full of lush green leaves and full of flowers, then the plant is full of life. And it's the same with people. With some people, you can never quite tell whether they're really a Christian or not a Christian because the evidence of the Spirit's work in their life is almost invisible. That is not a good place to be because it leaves us with complete uncertainty about where we stand before God. On the other hand, there are people whose lives are so full of the fruit of the Spirit that you can have great confidence that they belong to Jesus. Well, in this passage, God is urging us to be that second kind of people. He wants us to pursue lots of fruit so that we can be full of assurance. How can you know that you belong to God? Yes, of course, uh, it's by faith that, we say, that we're saved. But Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that there will be people on the last day who will be surprised that they don't belong to Jesus. They'll say to Jesus, but Jesus, we did all these things in your name. And Jesus will say, away from me, I never knew you. How can we know that our faith is genuine, how can we know that we're not a fake Christian? Well, the answer to that is to diligently pursue assurance. 
Don't be lazy, but imitate those who through faith and patience have gained what was promised. In chapter 11, the writer will give us a big long list of those people who we can imitate. A list that culminates in Jesus himself, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We grow in assurance then by hanging on to Jesus and following his example. We, we grow in assurance by continuing to hold on to Jesus as our great high priest, as Andy showed us last week. We grow in assurance by striving to grow in discerning God's ways from sinful ways. We grow in, a, in assurance by striving through repentance and faith in Jesus and through the Spirit's help to put off sin and to put on godliness. We grow in assurance by imitating the example of the mature Christians that God has put around us. And we grow in assurance by encouraging, challenging and spurring each other on to love and good deeds. And as you do that, by God's grace, you'll see more and more fruit. You'll see more and more of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And your maturity will grow and your assurance will grow. Not just that God is faithful, but that God is faithful to you. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would keep us from immaturity and help us to grow to full maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, if any of us are still immature Christians who haven't yet learned to put the knowledge of you into practice, to grow in discerning good from evil, to grow in following the Lord Jesus Christ, if any of us are immature Christians, Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in that maturity by spurring one another on to love and good deeds, by hanging on to Jesus, and by seeing more and more the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to grow to maturity so that we might have full assurance of faith. Lord, so that we might know the truth of your promises but also the truth that your promises belong to us, to me as an individual. Lord, please uh, help us to do that so that we might live the Christian life with joy, not with uncertainty, but with joy, knowing that we belong to you. And Lord, we also pray that none of us would be fake Christians. Lord, we pray that there would be no one among us who pretends to be a Christian, but really is living their own way and the stubbornness of their own heart. We pray that there would be no one who claims the forgiveness of God and yet continues to live willingly and deliberately in sin. Lord, we pray that if there are those people among us that you would speak into their hearts by your word, that you would divide their heart by your truth, that you would show them the reality of their life. Lord, not so that they would despair, but so that they would apply the gospel so that they would repent and trust in Jesus and follow him. Lord, if there are any that we know of who are living in that way, help us to warn them, to warn them prayerfully and humbly. Lord, we ask that none of us would be fake Christians, living lives of cheap grace, but that we will be mature Christians 
full of assurance and confidence that we belong to you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.